Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran, co-founder of 10 by 9 along with Padraig Otuma, which we started in Belfast in 2011. 10 by 9 is a live event where nine people have up to 10 minutes to tell a true story from their own life. As it's Easter and springtime, here's a longer than usual podcast to enjoy during the brighter evenings. If there's an overriding theme, it's love, but you can decide for yourselves. First though, here's a mini-story from Podrick, told in 2017 at the Black Box in Belfast. So our theme tonight, we take a theme each month and our theme tonight is Secrets and Lies. And when I was about eight, my parents came home with a brand new video recorder. And I was very, very excited because everybody else that I knew had a video recorder. This thing looked like a large cassette player because you press big buttons and something popped up. It was a Betamax video, which meant that I couldn't borrow a VHS video from anybody else. And we were told this lengthy, lengthy story about a man in dad's work who had to go to America and he had just bought the video and he wanted to find a trustable family, this is us, to look after this video recorder. And we had to be very careful and it would be best if we didn't tell too many people about the video recorder that we had borrowed from the man who had gone to America. And every month, I'd say, I, with great fear, like, is the man coming back from America yet? Is he coming back from America yet? And I believed this, and then eventually, when I was about 17, my parents bought an actual VHS, and that was all very exciting. And so I'm 42 this year, and I'd say about five years ago, I mentioned that story to my sister, and she said, you know that that man didn't exist. <laughs> my parents didn't want their brothers and sisters thinking, who are those people buying a video player? And it was an awful piece of shite. And so that video player was this big secret of life because my parents didn't want to seem to be flahool in front of their brothers and sisters. Any of you who know what flahool means, a little bit too generous with things, with themselves especially. So, welcome to Secrets and Lies. If you ever meet my mother, you're not allowed to tell her that because recently my mother was up visiting and somebody from 10 by 9 met her and said, I know so many stories about you. And my mother went, really? But she was a bit bewildered and I just moved her on. So, welcome to 10 by 9. Let's head over to Nashville now, where 10 by 9 has been running since 2013. I'll let the Nashville co-host, Michael McRae, do the introduction. Apologies, there are a few glitches in the recording, but believe me, the story is well worth it. Here's Michael. And Nat McRae is known by Honey to family and friends, which includes me. She is an 80-year-old mother grandmother, great-grandmother, and a wife of 61 years. Here, yes, that's very much worth applauding. Here's her story of the beginning of that love story of 61 years that started right here in Nashville. This is her seventh story. Please welcome my grandmother, Honey. On a February night, 62 years ago, in a cold, stark stairwell in Alumni Auditorium on the Lipscomb campus, that music touched my very heart and soul. I was a 19-year-old sophomore, and I knew my life would never be the same. Three months before, on November 26, 1956, I met a tall, dark, handsome guy. Bobby, my college roommate and best friend from back home, was getting married to Bill, and I was to be the maid of honor. 
the best man, who was a 25-year-old Lipscomb graduate living in Connecticut, was in town for a special party. Jay, his good friend, was with him in Nashville. I was going to the party with Jay, and the best man had a date with another girl. I vividly remember coming down the stairs to the reception hall in Johnson Hall where the guys were waiting for us. I took one look at them and said to myself, oh shoot, look at that tall, dark-haired one, and I had to get the cross-eyed one. <laughs> Jay really wasn't cross-eyed, and he was really quite nice-looking, but he might as well have had a sack over his head. <laughs> because all evening, I could not keep my eyes from straying to the best man, who also seemed to be looking right back at me. The next morning, I happily listened to Bobby conversing out the window of our second floor corner room as Bill stood down on the ground below, desperately trying to tell her his special news. She refused to listen to him until he heard her news. The news? I wanted to date the best man, and he wanted to date the maid of honor, me. We had our first date the next night, and I think we both knew this could be very special. A lovely romance began to blossom between us. His name was John, and he was tall, and his Oklahoma drawl had often earned him the name of John Wayne. We had two dates before he left town for a month, and then the letters started going both ways, tender, lovely, exploratory, but we had a problem. I was informally engaged to a guy back home. You know, a football captain, homecoming queen, kind of teenage romance that it just fizzled. I wasn't sure what would happen with John, but I did know I couldn't possibly feel the way I did and still love that other guy. John returned for the wedding on Christmas Day. He was oh so handsome in his dark suit, remained so for all their years, and quite chivalrous and the perfect date. He also had a devilish sense of humor. He picked up the groom's suit at the tailor's and substituted the suit pants for an old pair which he had almost shredded and then placed carefully on the hanger under the suit coat. He got in the shower just as the groom started to get dressed. John said the scream could have been heard all over the county <laughs> when the shredded pants were removed from the hanger. The groom vowed revenge even after his suit pants had been returned. We both knew we were falling deeply in love very quickly. By January 11th, those letters started arriving from Connecticut from one to three a day with beautiful declarations of love in prose and poetry. On January the 21st, two weeks after he left, about 8.30 in the evening, I was called to the community phone in the dormitory hallway for a long distance call from Connecticut. Now, a long distance call was a big deal back in those days. And John had a marriage proposal. He asked, I said yes, and after 12 dates and only 45 days after we met, we were engaged. 
we immediately began writing of wedding plans. On January 30th, in the middle of a beautiful love letter, he wrote, Claire DeLune, my favorite of favorites, is on the radio right now. If you could only be here now, if I could only look into your angel eyes and hear you speak my name, etc., etc., etc. From that time on, that became our song. After 52 days of separation, four phone calls, and 155 letters between us, he returned to Nashville during the night of February 26th. The next morning, I cut classes, <laughs> met him at my brother's house for a much-anticipated reunion, which would have been a little bit awkward on the Lipscomb campus. <laughs> we spent a wonderful day together before I had to get back to campus for play practice. We were in the final days of rehearsal for The Mad Woman of Chaillot. I was playing the part of the barmaid, and one romantic scene on stage almost sent John back to Connecticut. He weathered the shock, and with some difficulty, the next evening, just after play practice, and before 10 o'clock curfew, we stole away to a secluded spot in the cold, stark stairwell of Alumni Auditorium, where he declared his love once more and gave me this engagement ring. Remember Claire de Lune, our song? Well, just after he gave me the ring and in the middle of a lovely kiss, someone began playing Claire de Lune on the grand piano in the auditorium. The stairwell suddenly wasn't so cold and dark, but rather a very romantic setting because of our love and Claire de Lune, our song. We were married on June 9th, 1957, in the little church in my hometown with Bill and Bobby as best man and matron of honor. We waved goodbye, started the car, and went nowhere. <laughs> Bill the groom, remember? The shredded pants, the vowed revenge. Well, he jacked up the back wheels of the car. <laughs> so we were waving and going nowhere. <laughs> Well, we finally made it as far as the Smokies for a little three-day honeymoon. During our 61-year adventure together, begun in our little apartment off Granny White Pike, we've had many romantic honeymoons. Let's see, there was Mykonos, Sorrento, the Isle of Capri, Switzerland, the Greek island of Santorini, Etc., etc., etc. And Claire de Lune, well, we always had a tape or a CD with us with our song. It was played for my entrance at our third son's wedding. It was played at our 50th anniversary back here in Nashville. And on John's 80th birthday, our granddaughter Anna, an accomplished classical pianist, played it for him in a lovely birthday concert on the Lipscomb campus. It continued to touch a place deep in my heart and made simply holding his hand a lovely experience. In one of my letters to John 62 years ago, I wrote, if I live to be 80, I shall still take out your beautiful letters and reread them. 
I'm now 80, and I have done that. And as I predicted so long ago, they filled my whole heart with joy and produced a glow in my soul. And Claire de Lune, it was beautifully played by our granddaughter here in Nashville four weeks ago at the beginning of John's funeral service. I can still say, as I did long ago, now and forevermore, with a heart that is yours, I love you completely. And that was the taste of Claire de Lune. What a beautiful love story. Next, we go to Adelaide. Here's a story told by Vladimir Lorenzo on April the 11th, when the theme was kindness. Initially, life was a fairly neutral experience. But as I grew older and became more of my surroundings, I became more alert to the need to avoid dangers. We were a very insular family, hardly ever socialised. There were very few extended family members, as my paternal grandfather had been a newcomer to our city, Trieste, from a long way away. My maternal grandparents came from another country, Yugoslavia, and only my paternal grandmother was still alive when I was around. My father had a stepsister he didn't like very much. So we hardly ever saw her, and an only aunt lived nearby, but we didn't see her that often. So, not so many family members to interact with. Plus, a brother nine years older than me, who lived in an adult world as far as I was concerned. We hardly ever spent time doing something together. I just dealt with my little world by myself. And I had to learn how to navigate it safely from a very early age. I didn't understand then why it was as it was until much later in life. I just accepted it and had to learn to avoid the landmines sown all around. Emotional verbal attacks were a constant threat. If I got a beating, it was whilst I had to stand at attention, arms by my side. Heck, I was just a little kid, and most of the time I couldn't help but raise my arms to protect myself. That just meant I got an extra beating because I didn't follow orders. A picture of me was painted with tones of weakness, impotence, incompetence, uselessness, with which I was constantly presented. The word love I never remember hearing hugs with something I read about in fairy tale books. I learned eventually at a fairly early age to switch off my feelings and build a thick stone wall around me to keep the enemy out. I lived in a self-made Norman Tower for safety. It was not until many years later into my late 20s that I was able to understand from where all this violence and hardness of my father came from. His own father died by being gassed in World War I. He didn't make it back home, but died shortly after. My father was old enough to remember and sometimes retell that memory of a father coughing his life away. His mother quickly remarried, but unfortunately it turned out to be to a serious drunk who made life hell for my father. To try to protect him, my grandmother would send him to bed at 5pm so that he was not around when his stepfather, always drunk, would come home. If he was up, he'd get a beating just for being there. 
Finally, my father got married, and my mother, on some rare occasion, would mention warmly how wonderful that early period was. But then World War II came, and he went off to war. Was away until it ended, no furloughs to go back home. He was in on the invasion of France, served in Albania and Greece, then was off to Operation Barbarossa, invading Russia. What he brought back moulded me. My mother told me after he passed away that the man she married went off to war and never came back. I was born just after the war, so that was the only man I knew. Three years in Russia that he never spoke of or who he lived and fought with, just how glorious it is to be a soldier, the honour of duty, and how you're respected for that. But gentleness, compassion, and kindness were sentiments he left behind in the frozen Russian forests. I finally understood better why he became the man I knew as a father from the few things I found out in later years. There was the time he was captured with four other men. The officer in charge had them all kneel, then went down the line and shot each one in the head with his pistol. When he got to the last man, my father, he put the pistol to his head, held it there for a while, then pulled it away and told his men to give my father a shovel and had him bury the four dead bodies. When he finished, he just told him to piss off and go back to his own home and let him go free. Another time during a Russian attack, he kept his gun firing. He was an artillery man. To the end, single-handed, whilst wounded, until the Russians finally retreated. The only thing was that every other man in his battery had been killed. He was the only one left standing. Every friend of his was gone in that one action. He got a medal for it. There's also those experiences, and who knows what else, was what I had to live with. I must have been about five years old, and a relative gave me, as a present, a wonderful clockwork-driven tank that had metal tracks and a machine gun that shot many sparks when it, the tank rolled on. I loved that toy. It was the best one I ever received as a child. I was playing it with it on the kitchen floor one day when, for some reason, my father got angry with me. Spontaneous explosions of anger with the landmines I had to constantly navigate, then marched over to where I was sitting and repeatedly stomped on the tank. I sat stunned as I looked at this now mangled pile of twisted metal. He just bent down, leering at me as he said, that'll teach you. I never learned what was meant to teach me, except that it is still a painful memory today. The first 18 years of my life was a memory mostly best forgotten, and I kept myself together inside my defence of Norman Tower. I did well at school, got prizes, but actually never made a friend. Personal relationships just weren't something I was good at. Anyway, as soon as I turned 18, I signed up, signed up into the Air Force because of the war going on in Vietnam. That's what I thought was a duty under the circumstances, and frankly, felt war or not, it might be a friendlier and safer environment than home. Some years of training and postings followed, including a year I spent parachuting with, with SAS men, where I learned of puzzling of the public record operations our side carried out. Facts didn't seem to add up to the official narration the public was constantly being fed. Now, after four years of service, even though I had never had to face combat, I really started questioning the whole thing the values that had been drummed into me. There I was, 22 years old, sitting on cold stone steps of a small community building 
in a seemingly deserted town on a quiet Sunday morning in the Blue Mountains near Richmond, waiting for a lift back to the local Air Force base, trying to work out the meaning and value of my life, what I'm worth, if anything. People were dying. I was seeing them in tin boxes regularly arriving at the Richmond Air Base. We were constantly told what great and loyal service we were contributing to protect our country from the wild red hordes. But I am also being instructed not to wear my uniform off base because the Australian public disliked us so much. You could get attacked by civilians for wearing a Aussie military uniform. You get jailed if you try to avoid conscription, but then get beaten up if you wear the uniform in the street. All these values that I'm prepared to protect with my life, do they mean anything? Does my life mean anything? I felt the weight of the world crushing me. There I was sitting in this small country town, waiting for my lift, arms resting on my knees, head heavy with these thoughts. I was alone, trying to deal with so many confusing questions and really had no one to talk to, no one to share personal feelings with, locked in solitary confinement. Everything around me was peaceful at that moment, silent except for a bird or two in the trees, silence outside that didn't distract me from the somber maelstrom inside my mind. It felt as if time was standing still, past, present and future meaningless, just an endless question mark. From somewhere, a small boy walks by, 11, 12 years old. He stops up to passing, slightly turns and gazes at me. I look up, see his timid face just looking quietly and pensively. Just a nondescript local country boy. I look down again and continue drowning my darkness when he suddenly rushes up to me and hugs me around the neck, then quickly runs away down the side street. I'm dumbstruck. No stranger just runs up to you and hugs you. People keep a distance unless they know you well. My mind is a blank, just a blank. What just happened? Then I feel a wonderful glow spreading through me. Someone actually cares how I feel really cares. There is a world out there of which I'm a part that matters to someone, something new to me, a new experience, a gleam of light in a long night, an act of kindness I have never forgotten. Who is that boy today? I'd love to share some time with him. Thank you. If you're not choking back tears after that, well, what can I say? Thanks to Vladimir for the story and to Ben Roberts for the recording. We've been getting some great stories from Adelaide and you can find many of them scattered throughout our podcasts. Next up, we went into the archives to find this one from Jane Searle. The theme was love and she told this in July 2018 at the Fiddler's Green Festival in Ross Trevor. And we'll be back there again this July, so check that out. Here's Jane. Love means never having to say you're sorry. What a loaded drivel. My mum was walking past the TV with a pile of ironing as my little sister Emma and I were just at that crucial bit in the 1970s film Love Story. Love means often having to say you're sorry, even when you aren't wrong. Sometimes it just makes everybody's life easier. It's called compromise. My mother had a way with words. She resented them being thrown together in pretend poetry. She hated the way the person with the loudest voice often got to win the argument. She always listened before she spoke. 
My mother loved language. Every week, she would head to the library in the centre of Armagh. It was an old building where the world became hushed and people came to borrow lives outside their own. My mother visited Tutankhamun in Egypt, rode camels across the deserts of Persia with Gertrude Bell, and ran barefoot across the moors looking for Heathcliff. Emma and I would wander through the children's section as she would browse the shelves, carefully lifting hardback books that were protected from the fingers of many by a layer of fine plastic covering. I would watch her as she handled them as sacred objects. She deserves to feel the real covers and to own the books themselves, I thought. Selection made, she would make her way to the front desk and set them carefully on the counter, watching as Miss Fleming, the librarian, stamped dates on her reading choices. What a variety of reading, Mrs. Wright, she would say as she peered over her NHS glasses, approving of the way my mother stretched her mind, how she reached out into the bigger world. For my mother, reading was the big love of her life. It was her introduction to other worlds, and rather than leave her dissatisfied with her own, she used the knowledge to bring the passion, courage, and open-mindedness of the book people to her door. They educated her, and in turn, she educated us, her children. There were five of us, but by the time I was nine and Emma was seven, my older brother and sisters were all doing their own thing, and it was to us, the two wee late ones, that she was turning all her loving. It is easy when as adults we revisit memories to become over-sentimental. A tidal wave drenches us with pleasant postcard images, sometimes drowning out the harsher scenes and the difficult memories. When I visit my memories of my mother, I bear this in mind. But realism has never once presented me with a frayed or a faded photo. They have always been picture-perfect, bright, sharp, warm colours. Even though I have been without her in my life for over 35 years, I can still hear the whispers of her voice and her cheers from the sidelines. Concentrate on your own life. Don't busy yourself looking at anyone else's. They probably aren't as perfect as they seem. And this was her advice before the existence of Facebook. Don't be too quick to judge others. Sometimes a moment's unpleasantness towards you is born from a lifetime of disappointment and hurt. Rudeness is never acceptable, but when we turn it away from ourselves and think of where it may have started, we can let it go easier. And on the subject of romance, my mother had it perfected. Never wait around on a boy. She would tell the story of how, for her first date with my father, she had arranged to meet him at the pictures in Inniskillen. She was there on time and he was late. She saw him in the distance, sauntering along casually with his mates, and she turned and started walking the other way. He had to really leg it to catch up with her. Panting and out of breath, he asked her, Didn't you see me coming, Molly? I did, she replied calmly, but I shouldn't have had to. You should have been there. I remember this years later as I sat by the phone longing for it to ring and went to the post office asking them to track down a letter that had clearly never been sent. Don't lose your dignity over love, she whispered in my ear. My mother was the envelopment of love and goodness could she envelop you. 
Five foot two with arms that could squeeze the breath from your lungs, her pink plumpness smelt of fresh talcum powder and hairspray. When we would return home from school each day, she would make a cup of tea and with a chocolate biscuit, Emma and I would sit down beside the fire with her and chat about the day. Give me a while you're a crack, she would smile. And she really wanted to know. She was actually interested in the trivialities of our day. Small things that to us were giants. Like Alison Burden stealing Emma's toffee yo-yo four days in a row. Or Mr Davidson, the caretaker, mistaking me for a boy with my short hair. I had felt embarrassed and didn't want to go back to school in case it happened again. But in her quiet, reassuring way, Mummy would remind us that tomorrow was another day and we could meet the problems head on. Often it was just in the speaking out of the worries that we were able to let them leave that place in our head where they were in danger of fermenting and growing into something bigger. Don't let them take root, Mummy would advise us wisely. Now in my 50s, with a bit of life's experience behind me, I am beginning to understand the selfless love my mother showed those around her. She never simply reserved it for us, her nearest and dearest. Often there was someone at our kitchen table with a cup of tea and a paper hanky pouring out their troubles to her. Sometimes she would disappear to help a neighbour or a friend. I think looking back that she was a marriage guidance counsellor long before the job officially existed. Her own life was not always easy. I think there was a lot of that compromise that she talked about. When it was decided in our church that the women's group would not go to the Women's World Day of Prayer because it was being held in the Catholic Cathedral, my mother was outraged. Do they think we'll be praying to a different God? She said to my father after church. I'm going, like it or not. But she didn't go. She let others know of her frustration, but she did not want to make things more difficult for my father as he was on the church session and the committee. But years later, she was the first woman to be elected on the church committee, so she could have her say in her own right and to speak her mind. When I say that my mother introduced me to love, it is a simple statement, but it is an overwhelming truth. Her safe arms, her love of books, her questioning mind, and the courage with which she died of cancer at only 57. Why not me, she said, have left me with a blueprint of how to love that I hope I am passing on to my own two girls. Love means often having to say you're sorry. You'll find an amazing story from Jane on Podcast 76 about her grandparents. And if you Google Jane Searle BBC, you can read more on that. Let's go back to Nashville now. And if you're heading to Tennessee, check out 10by9nashville.com. Their evening is held at the Douglas Corner Cafe once a month. So here's a story from Christy Lynch. The theme was, that was awkward and well... This is awkward and brilliant. I'm what you might call a nervous talker. That is, someone for whom silence is an invitation. Not to contemplate, not to relax, but to talk. Empty space in a conversation is uncomfortable to me, and I will color it in with the first harebrained thing that comes to my mind before I will let it ring out. (laughs) After all, nothing I say out loud could be as painful as a slow, prickly, drawn-out silence. (laughs) Right? (laughs) 
At a wedding in May, this philosophy was tested when an ex-boyfriend walked up with his current companion, Megan. <laughs> this ex-boyfriend is an established member of our mutual friend group, so we had seen each other around since we'd broken up at birthday parties and baby showers, but there was always a buffer around to pad our interactions. On this occasion, our buffer, Heidi, suddenly announced, I have to go to the bathroom, and left. <laughs> Me, my ex, and his girlfriend all watched her walk away. <laughs> I turned to Megan and sort of smiled. We'd seen each other around, too, and had occasionally made small talk about each other's earrings. So, naturally, I filled the imminent silence with, you know, your necklace looks like shrimp cocktail. <laughs> she touched the lumpy charm around her neck and made a face I couldn't immediately decipher. Oh, she said, I was in a ceramics program in college, and my friend was doing a lot of tumor-inspired art at the time because she had cancer. I considered the necklace more closely. <laughs> a dumpling-sized growth with a single red string through it dangling just below her collarbone. I guess I could see the tumor resemblance, but I still felt an undeniable urge to dip it in tartar sauce. <laughs> I said, that's cool. <laughs> Um, it looks like shrimp cocktail. In the hush that followed, I ran through an inventory of other seafood appetizers to apprehend any other comparisons. Calamari, lobster rolls, crab rangoon, crab cakes. It occurred to me that her dress was the color of salmon mousse. <laughs> But I kept this to myself. <laughs> Megan made the next attempt to buoy our sinking conversation. She said, so, we went to the Georgia Aquarium this morning. This transition almost made sense. <laughs> like saying, speaking of shrimp, Sometimes the ocean is inside. <laughs> but I was eager to move the conversation along, so I did my best to meet her topic with enthusiasm. I said, oh, I love the Georgia Aquarium. Did you see the dolphin show? I envisioned myself hitting a conversational volleyball across the net, <laughs> knees bent and ready to banter politely back and forth to dominate the hovering awkward pause for good. Then Megan said, Dolphin show, <laughs> have you seen Blackfish? <laughs> 
you could actually hear my perfectly served volleyball smack the ground. I confirmed that I was familiar with blackfish, and she continued, yeah, dolphins communicate using echolocation, so it's actually like really cruel to keep them in an enclosed area where their echo waves just like bounce back at them all day. I began to wonder what the benefits were of trying to keep this dialogue afloat. <laughs> the truth is, when I saw the dolphin show a year and a half earlier, it was so beautiful that I cried. <laughs> I was in Atlanta for work just a week after breaking up with this very ex-boyfriend. And I thought a trip to the aquarium might cut a little vent in my lean cuisine of emotions. <laughs> but when I got there, it was crowded, noisy, and the salad I got from their cafe had soggy croutons. There were too many tall people for me to see the penguins and too many short people for me to pet a stingray. But the dolphin show. I had never seen anything like it. The connection these dolphins had with their human trainers was like something out of a Disney Channel original movie. <laughs> they swam together, held eye contact, gave each other high fives. The first 15 rows got splashed every time a dolphin spun through the air. And by the end of the show, I was dripping with pool water and tears. <laughs> but none of this seemed pertinent to the conversation at hand. The phrase, pearls before swine, entered my mind briefly. Instead, in response to Megan's ethical concerns about echolocation, I said, actually, I think I learned that from this really compelling film I watched recently, Finding Dory? <laughs> Have you heard of it? She looked genuinely curious. No, I haven't seen it. I said, it's on Netflix. You should check it out. I looked at my ex now, who was sweating a lot. I asked him, what did you like about the aquarium? And he blurted out, the beluga whales. Great, I said, both relieved that we had finally landed on a subject we could all agree on, and a little impressed that it had taken us this long. I told him I also loved the beluga whales, and everyone nodded in silence. <laughs> I think we've all been there. Thanks to Christy in Nashville, and also Annette, Vladimir, Jane, and Podrig. And of course, thanks for listening. 10 by 9 is always free, but if you want to help cover our costs, you can donate on our website, 10 by 9com And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our theme tune comes from the Free Music Archive and is by Fantastic Swimmers, while our incidental music is by Brent Bourgeois, sourced at Facebook Sounds. We leave you with a little bit more of Claire de Lune. For now, bye-bye.